This is a, a strange week. Uh, pastor in New York named Tim Keller said, Christians should be the happiest people in the world and at the same time, the saddest people in the world. This is one of those weeks where I kind of feel that way. Um, we're the saddest people in the world because we see the sin in the world around us and in our own lives. We see the effects of sin. We see pain and, and suffering in the world, and we grieve over that. But at the same time, we're, we're the happiest people in the world because we have the hope that Christ is working through the pain and sin and grief in this world for his good purposes. Um, as I come in here this morning, I'm, I'm just feeling a little bit torn both of those directions because this week we've been grieving this tragedy that happened just a block from here. Uh, Sarah Yara uh, killed uh, just this week, 16-year-old student at McKinley High, a hit by a, a hit-and-run driver. And uh, we, we want to invite you to, to, to bless the family in a way this afternoon. Uh, in, in his sovereignty, God opened up our schedule by, you know, encouraging us somehow to, to cancel the baptism. And instead, we've got a, a rally that we're partnering with uh, that's called Show Up for Sarah. It's the Ward Village Moms that's organizing this. And we'd like to encourage you, if you've got uh, time this afternoon at 1 o'clock, it'll be right at the corner right here where the accident happened. It'll be a way just to support the family and also to push for change in the community, uh, for greater pedestrian safety in the community, because this isn't the first time this has happened. It's almost exactly four years ago right now that there were four pedestrians run over at the opposite end of Kamakea Street uh, in a terrible accident there. And so we don't want to see that happen again. And so we want to support Sarah's family and uh, support change in this community. So if you can make it, that'd be great. Um, when tragedies like this happen, there's one question that everybody asks, and that's just why. Why would God allow uh, a 16-year-old girl with her whole life ahead of her to be killed so suddenly? Why would God allow that to happen? That's a huge question. Long time ago, I was at a funeral for a 16-year-old boy who was killed suddenly in the middle of football practice, a brain aneurysm, just dropped him right on the field, right there. He was gone. And at his funeral, the pastor who was officiating knew that everybody was asking, why? Why would God let this happen? And he tried to answer that question. He said, well, God didn't want this to happen. And so this isn't God's fault. This is Satan's fault. God wanted to stop it, but Satan was just too powerful. And so God couldn't. And as I listened to him say that, I, I started grieving even more than I was already grieving. Because I, I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to defend the love of God, trying to say, well, well a loving God wouldn't allow this. And so, so God had nothing to do with this. But, but the problem with that is we can't defend the love of God by kneecapping the power of God. We can't do that. If the God of this universe is powerless to stop tragedy, if the God of this universe is powerless to thwart Satan, that's not a God I want to worship. I don't want that God in charge of this universe. I don't want a God who's just some nice old uncle in the sky, some God who, who wants to do good but can't do good, is powerless to do good. I, I don't want that God. I want a God who works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And good thing for us, we have that God. Good thing for us, that's the God we meet when we go to the Bible. That's the God we're going to see here in Revelation. So if you have your Bible, you can open to Revelation 19. 
This is just such a good text for us in a, a very tragic week like this week. Uh, over the past month, we've been seeing God in Revelation, how he is one day going to systematically dismantle evil, pain, suffering, and sin in the world. One day God is going to defeat Satan once and for all, and it's going to be so good. But if we're still, uh, still alive when that happens, it's not going to feel good. It's not going to be a, a pretty process when God does this. But God's going to work all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Last week, we saw in Revelation 18 how God's going to destroy Babylon, Satan and his kings. They'll be defeated. And now, as we get to chapter 19, it's almost finished. If you can imagine it as a football game, we're two minutes from the end of the game, very end of the fourth quarter. Satan's team, they've lost their starting quarterback. They've lost all of their backup quarterbacks. God's team has the win locked up. The game isn't finished yet, but it's as much as won. And so the party up in the owner's booth of God's team, up in heaven, it's already starting, even though the clock still has a few minutes left on it. That's what we're going to see here in Revelation 19. That's what we're going to witness today. And this is such a powerful passage and so good for this time that I wanted to go a little Presbyterian this morning. I want us to stand. Could we all stand for the reading of God's Word? And if you have your Bible, you can just kind of read it and listen along. I'm reading Revelation 19, starting in verse 1. John says this, After this, I heard something like a loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time, they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice. Let us give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. And then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus, worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And Lord God, that's what we've come here to do, to worship you, because your prophecy is true, because we have hope that one day in the future you will put an end to sin, wickedness, suffering, pain in this world. We can't wait for that day. Help us to live in light of that day, while we've got to make it through the slog of these days. 
Help us to celebrate you and your power and goodness and love and grace that we've already seen expressed through the death and resurrection of your son on the cross. We've come here to worship Jesus today. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So we just got this glimpse of this party in heaven that is coming at the end of the age. Incredible thing to look forward to. But here's the thing. God doesn't want us to wait until the end of the age to experience that party. Even though life is tough right now, he is inviting us to join them right now. We heard it in verse 5, a voice coming from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants, the ones who fear him, both small and great. He's talking to us, family. He's talking to us, all of us, great and small, from rich to poor, from powerful to insignificant, from mature Christians to baby Christians, all of us. He's calling all of us to praise. And he's calling all of us to party. Like it says in verse 7, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Let us rejoice. If you joined us in the Bible Challenge last year where we listened to the whole Bible in a year, about every other day we would get a psalm that we would listen to. I don't know if you noticed, in so many of the psalms it calls us to rejoice, calls us to be glad all the time, calls us to celebrate over and over. Like in Psalm 5, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. All through the Psalms and all through the Bible, God calls us to celebrate. In fact, you could say it even stronger than that. God commands us to celebrate. He commands us to celebrate. You'd be like, well, what if I don't really feel like celebrating right now? What if I'm just not feeling it this week? I've got a boss who's coming down on me, won't stop criticizing me, or maybe you're like, I've got a, I've got a classmate who won't stop teasing me. Maybe you're like, I've got a two-year-old who won't stop abusing me. I've got a bully of a two-year-old in my house. I don't know what to do with this kid. But I don't feel like celebrating right now. I just don't feel it. Well, that's why God had to give us a whole bunch of reasons to celebrate. We just heard a bunch of them. I could count five in that passage that we just went through. Five things to celebrate. Five things that'll get us out of bed in the morning and out the door every morning, no matter what's on the other side of that door. A boss a bully, an abusive two-year-old, no matter what's on the other side of your bedroom door, this is what's going to get you through the day with joy and praise. Here's what we celebrate, family. Number one, celebrate the fact that Jesus wins. Celebrate the win that Jesus is going to accomplish, that he's going to deliver us by defeating Satan and his schemes. Like it said in verse two, he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. That's his victory over Satan right there. It's coming, and it's going to be full and final. But here's the good news. You don't have to wait until the end of the age to experience that. Look at what it says in Colossians 2. Colossians 2 says, Jesus erased the certificate of debt that was against us, and he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross, and therefore he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. What does that say? We'll leave that up for you. Look, look at that. It says that you've got a certificate of debt that's against you. 
a list of all of your sins written down, just like every one of your credit card charges is written down on a credit card bill. One day at the end of the age, your certificate of debt is going to be pulled out and presented to you, just like they mail your credit card bill to you. One by one, the Bible says they're going to go through that certificate, sin by sin. Every single one of your sins, one by one. Imagine how painful that'll feel. Like, how painful is it to, to go through your credit card bill every month? You're like, I spent that much just at Costco in one month? Are you serious? That's just one month's worth of debt. What we're talking about here is an entire lifetime worth of debt. You're going to get that bill. But then, if you are in Christ, God is going to take that bill, and he's going to take a giant stamp that says, canceled and ka-chunk, he'll cancel every one of those debts. Because, as it says, every one of those debts has been erased. Every one of those debts was nailed to the cross. Every single one of your sins was a nail pounded into the body of Jesus. And because of that, the rulers and the authorities, Satan, his posse, they've been disarmed. They've been defeated. They've been disgraced. They've got no power over you anymore. The only power that Satan has over you is the power that you let him have. And even that is going to be destroyed one day in the future. Even that little bit of power is going to be taken away. Satan's going to be judged, and his smoke will ascend forever and ever. we got to celebrate that, family. The process has already started. We're, we're two minutes to the end of the game, and one day the, the win is going to be sealed. we got to celebrate that. And then, number two, celebrate how Jesus loves. Not just that he wins, that he loves as he's winning. Like it says in verse 7, let us be glad, rejoice, give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. What does that tell us? We're seeing a wedding here in Revelation 19. Jesus is getting married, and who is he marrying? You and me. And, and yeah, I know, if you've been in church for a long time, you've heard that a billion times. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. But have you ever taken a minute to just sit and contemplate, just meditate on what that really means? What does a bridegroom feel for his bride? On his wedding day, what, what are the emotions going through his head? What, what does that convey about the heart of Christ? Well, in Ephesians 5, it tells us how Jesus feels about his bride. It says, Christ so loved the church that he gave himself up for her. Jesus loves us so much that he gave his life for us. We're his bride. There's a special, unique kind of love that you have for your bride that's totally, totally special. I love my kids. I love my friends. I love my coworkers. But I love my bride in a way I don't love anybody else in the world. I will die for my bride, no questions asked. For you, I'll get back to you on that. I, I might have to have a conversation about that. But I'll do anything for my bride. If one of my kids wants to scrap with my bride, try and argue with my bride, guess whose side I'm going to be on? My bride's. No question. I don't care if she's right or wrong. We'll figure that out later. But in the moment, I'm taking her side. I've got her back. Sometimes my kids will ask me, Dad, why are you always on mom's side? 
And the first thing I'll say is, well, that's because you're going to be gone in a couple of years and I'm stuck with her for the rest of my life. <laughs> but the second thing I'll say is, because I love her so much more than I love you or anybody else in this world. She is my bride and family. That is the kind of love that Jesus has for us. He gave up his life for us. You sinned against him. You offended him. You abused him. And what did he do? What did he do? He didn't run away. He didn't ghost you. He came closer to you. How crazy is that? He gave up his glory in heaven to become human like us. He lived here on earth to be with us. He died on the cross to redeem us. What kind of love is that? The more we sin, the more he loves? Yeah, that's what Paul says in Romans 5. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. It's not our righteousness and our loveliness that unlocks the love of Jesus. It's our unrighteousness and unloveliness that unlocks more and more of the love of Jesus. I know that's a crazy thing to think. That's not how the world works. That's not how we work. But the love of Christ is so intense for us that even our sin draws him closer to us. No matter what we've done, if we will draw near to him through humility and, and repentance, then he will draw nearer to us than he's ever been before. You know how huge that is, family? You've got a friend, you've got a bridegroom who's never going to leave you, no matter what. Saw a new study that came out this week on loneliness in our culture. These days, 60% of Americans feel lonely often. You know what it is for millennials? 70%. You know what it is for Gen Z? 80%. 80% of Gen Z feels lonely often. Often. Well, Jesus, your bridegroom, said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You've got access to him anytime through his word, through prayer. And, and so you don't need to be lonely. You don't need to be. Maybe this week you were feeling it more than usual. I think Valentine's Day is like scientifically designed to make everyone feel lonely. <laughs> I think that's how they did it. If you're single, you're like, why don't I have a spouse? If you're married, you're like, why do I have this spouse? <laughs> That's what Cindy was feeling, our first Valentine's Day. I, I forgot to make a dinner reservation, and so I took her to Chili's. <laughs> and I didn't want to spend $100 on some flowers that were just going to die in a couple days, so I got her a potted plant. It, it was supposed to be a rose bush, but none of the roses were blooming. <laughs> And so it's just this sad little shrub in this sad little plastic pot. And so I present it to her at Chili's, and she just looks at me, and she's like, is there a return policy on husbands? Is, are we still under warranty here? Can I trade you in still? Because I am such a terrible bridegroom compared to our bridegroom, Jesus. We have an incredible friend, an incredible bridegroom who will never leave us. we got to celebrate that. Celebrate his love. And even more than that, celebrate his commitment. 
Celebrate the fact that Jesus commits. I mean, maybe you didn't realize this, but we're not the bride of Christ yet. Not completely. The marriage hasn't happened yet. It'll happen at the end of the age. Right now, we are betrothed to Christ. That's what we are. In first century Israel, if you wanted to marry a girl, here's what you would do. Grab your best friend, your best man, go over to her house, her father's house, and go sit down with her father to negotiate the purchase price for the bride. You always got to have a dowry that you pay for the bride. After you've negotiated that purchase price, then you make that payment. When you hear things in the Bible like, we were purchased with a price, we were bought at a price, yeah, now you know where that language is coming from. After you pay the purchase price for the bride, then you're betrothed. You're not living with her yet, definitely not sleeping with her yet, but you are just as committed to her as if you were actually married to her. She has been consecrated for you. She's been set apart for you. There's a new covenant between you. And you signify, you seal that covenant by pouring a cup of wine, drinking that in her house, her father's house. And before you drink that cup together, you say a blessing. And you say, this cup is a new covenant. Maybe that sounds familiar. After you drink that cup, you go back to your father's house and you start building a new room that's attached to your dad's house. You're preparing a place for your new bride to live with you. Might take you a year to finish that. You'll be away from your bride the whole time, but you will be completely committed to her the whole time. That commitment is so serious that if you die while you're betrothed, that girl will be considered a widow, even though the, the wedding hasn't happened yet. If you want to break things off while you're betrothed, you've got to present a certificate of divorce to her, and you better have a really good reason, or else the elders are not going to accept that. And that is the kind of commitment that Jesus has to us right now. We were bought with a price, his own blood. We drink the cup of a new covenant together every week when we take communion together. And so now, Jesus isn't living with us right now. He's away. He's back at his dad's house preparing a place for us. But one day, he's coming back for us. And right now, he is unshakably committed to us. So the question is, are we committed to him? Are we committed to him in the same way that he is committed to us? When you're betrothed to someone, you're making a huge commitment. You're saying, I'm not going to go flirt and, and, and play the field anymore. I'm definitely not going to be fooling around with anyone else anymore. That's why Joseph had in mind to divorce Mary when they were betrothed and he found out she was pregnant. He just assumed that she had committed adultery. Because that's what sin is when we are betrothed to Jesus. It's adultery. It's not stepping over the line one more time. It's not falling short of the mark one more time. It's adultery. It's cheating on the one that we've committed our life to. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the, the heaviness on Jesus' heart? When we do that to him, 
Well, our bridegroom is so committed to us that, that even when we cheat on him, he'll keep pursuing us all the way to the wedding day. In first century Israel, when you were done building a room for your bride, you would dress in your finest robes, gather all your friends, and you would go over to her house to bring her back. You've heard the phrase, take a bride. You're going over to her house to take her back to your house. You would show up at her house, and she would have some idea of when you were coming, but she wouldn't know the exact day or hour. And so just to throw her off guard, you would show up at like midnight time she would never be expecting. All your boys would be like, the bridegroom's here. Come out and meet him. And so your bride would put on a veil, gather her friends, grab some lamps, come out and meet you. You would take her, all her friends, and all her family back to your father's house. There would be special robes waiting for everyone to put on, and her family and friends would celebrate with your family and friends for a week. Imagine the bill for that party, a week of celebration. But that's what Jesus, the bridegroom, does. It's one more thing for us to celebrate. Celebrate the fact that Jesus gathers us together. Jesus gathers. He brings us together with his people. Like it said in verse 9, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast. We're blessed when we're these guests. We're the bride, but at the same time, we're the guests at the wedding. And that's a big way that Jesus cares for us, by gathering us together with his family. That's why we really emphasize community groups in our church. You're not really experiencing Harbor Church if you just come here and sit in a chair for an hour on a Sunday morning. Go get plugged into a community group. Like Mike just told you, there's cards out at the lobby with all our different community groups. There's one that's near you, one that fits your schedule. Go get plugged in. Get plugged into a ministry team. Use the gifts and talents that you've been given to bless other people because Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And I know when you hear that, you're like, yeah, maybe that's true in theory, but I don't think it's true in reality. It's harder to give than to receive. It's heavier to give than to receive. But then you go show up for like a kakako kako neighborhood breakfast. You work and you sweat along with a bunch of awesome people who are working alongside you. And you go home with 10 new friends. And you go home really believing that it's better to give than receive because giving brings you into community with other Christians. That's what this wedding feast is all about. That's what Jesus, the bridegroom, does. He gathers us. We've got to celebrate that. We've got to live that out. And then last, we've got to celebrate the fact that Jesus clothes us. Jesus clothes us. Like it says at the end of verse 7, the bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Jesus gives us fine linen to wear to the wedding, and it says that represents the righteous acts that we do. Jesus gives us the clothes to wear, but at the same time, we've got to prepare ourselves. Gives us the clothes to wear, but then we got to put the clothes on. Who's doing the work? The answer is both of us are doing the work. God initiates, we respond. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. Look at the way Paul says it. It is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. 
It's God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Family, that verse changed my life the first time I really meditated on it. Because before I really understood it, I thought I was the one who was seeking God. I thought I was the one who pursued Jesus and found him. I thought I was the one who was working for God. And every once in a while, maybe I'd need a little help, and so God would come and give me a little boost. But I was really the one behind it all. And then this verse rocked my world. I finally came to understand that it is God who gave me the will to work for him and just to come to him. And then it's God who empowered me to work for him. When it says God works in us in order to work, that word work, that's the Greek word energan. We get the word energy from that word. Literally, it's saying God energizes us to do everything, everything good. And that will revolutionize your relationship with God if you understand that right there. It's the fact that God gives you everything you need to do everything he asks. God gives you everything you need to do everything he asks. God clothes you with everything you need to do everything he asks. Maybe you're sitting here going, man, I, I want to be a better bride for Jesus. I want to be a better Christian. I, I want to obey the Bible more. I want to please God more, but I just can't. You don't know the sins I'm struggling with. You don't know the, the pressure I'm under at work. You don't know the problems that I've got in my family. It's just impossible to be the kind of bride that Jesus wants. It's impossible. And you know what? You're exactly right. You're exactly right. It is impossible to follow Christ on your own. And that's why God works in you. That's why God energizes you. That's why God clothes you. That's why God loves you and commits to you so that he can empower you to do what he's called you to do, so he can empower you to be who he's called you to be. Jesus loves you so powerfully. And the effect that he wants his love to have on you is that he wants to give you everything you need to do everything he asks. Family, it's time for us to lean into that. It's time for us to lean into that. Let's pray together. Father, in a week like this week, we really are the happiest people and the saddest people in the world. We're grieving tragedy like we saw this week. At the same time, we're rejoicing that Sarah is experiencing freedom, life with you in heaven. And one day we have the same thing to look forward to. Help us to celebrate that. Give us joy, give us peace, give us hope, and let that transform our lives. Thank you that through the blood of Jesus and the the resurrected life of Jesus, that now Jesus has given us everything we need to do everything he asks. Help us to lean into that so that we can be a pure, spotless bride. 
for Jesus when he returns. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.